is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the National Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering six conversations from our two-day coverage of the Liver Meeting 2022 and, instead of the vault, an interview with Inventiva Pharmaceuticals Chief Medical Officer Michael Corman and Stephen Harris. This conversation starts with Rachel Zayas discussing a poster from Curtis Gabriel at Vanderbilt University titled, Diabetic Persons with HIV and Hepatic Steatosis Have Reduced Intestinal Diversity. She notes that liver disease is the leading cause of death in HIV patients and that no study has addressed dysbiosis issues in HIV-positive populations. The study shows patterns of dysbiosis in NAFL formation for HIV-positive patients that are different than those in HIV-negative patients. In the end, Rachel notes, the author concludes that intestinal dysbiosis and hepatic steatosis are linked, and the topic requires more exploration. When Rachel finishes, Scott Friedman leads a discussion into a focus on ways that the broad uses of antibiotics and feedstock have changed our intestinal flora for the worse over the past 30 years. We go on to discuss other phenomena besides steatosis, sperm count declines, for example, or earlier menage, and that antibiotics are not the only agent societies introduced into the ecosystem. Pesticides, many of which are hormonally-based compounds, are another. Scott goes on to discuss his eye-opening theme of the meeting. The devil is in the details. He describes himself as always looking to reduce complex topics like steatosis to their main big picture themes. But to the contrary, this meeting is showing him how complex NAFLD is in its differences in cell backgrounds, microbiota, and treatment patterns. He notes that this is not a single disease, but a complex disease with a set of interrelated issues. He provides several examples of this, including Stephen Harrison's FASN presentation, which we'll discuss in a later conversation. Jorn Schottenberg notes that a drug does not have to affect all the key targets that have an impact on the disease, which leads Rachel to ask what the protective mechanisms are and to wonder whether they lie in epigenetics. Scott concurs, provides an example based on hyperlipidemia and the PCSK9 class. As the conversation winds down, I comment that this may be a disease, but we do not need to know exactly why an agent or a therapeutic approach works to know that it works. And to expect that we can figure out the whys later. With over 7,000 on-site attendees and tremendous amounts of positive energy, the Liver Meeting 22 produced exciting presentations, fantastic debates, and searing insights. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, catch everything in this series from us. And when you're done, join the discussion on our LinkedIn discussion group. Rachel Zayas. So there was a poster presentation that I found quite compelling. It's called Diabetic Persons with HIV and Hepatic Steatosis Have Reduced Intestinal Microbial Diversity. It was by Curtis Gabriel out of Vanderbilt University. Liver disease, of course, is a leading cause of mortality in patients with HIV, and they suffer a disproportionate burden of NAFLD. Dysbiosis is implicated in the pathogenesis in HIV-negative person, but the mechanisms have been underexplored in patients with HIV and NAFLD. So their aim was to assess the association between intestinal microbiome in patients with HIV and NAFLD. So they looked at a retrospective. They looked at patients on antiviral therapy between 2017 and 2020. Patients with diabetes were included because of the high prevalence of NAFLD in this population. Patients underwent CT scan and liver density to measure fat content. And then stool samples were collected and sequenced 
using 16S rRNA sequencing. This is a tool that can be used for classification and quantification of microbes with complex mixtures, and they can differentiate between similar species. In the study, they had eight patients without steatosis, so patients with HIV and diabetes uh, without steatosis, and nine patients with HIV, diabetes, and steatosis. So what they found was that there was abundance and increase in bacteriodota, which is a type of gram-negative bacteria that can colonize the GI tract, and a decrease in spermicide species in the patients with HIV NAFLD. What's really interesting about this is when I look these up, it's actually the opposite in early NAFLD patients. That was compelling to me, and, and I wonder if the microbiome environment changes over time. So there's an increase in the ratio at one point. It sets the stage for an environment and then a decrease. But what their key takeaways were from this study is that uh, they can link intestinal dysbiosis to hepatic steatosis in patients with HIV, and future studies should continue to explore this. You know, a lot of studies implicate both diagnosis as well as treatment, but I think just asking the questions of what does the normal microbiome look like initially, and how does this change over time? So I found this a compelling study. I agree with Rachel in terms of the importance of the microbiome. This is one of the variables that we still can't fully get our arms around. And to be clear, it's not just the microbiome bacteria, but it's the virome, it's the fungome, God knows what other uh, organisms we're overlooking. But putting this all together into a coherent story is not trivial. And I think it's really one of the challenges for today. The aspects I'm thinking of, Rachel, is inflammation triggered through the microbiome or the composition uh, feeding into insulin sensitivity or resistance and some changed, you know, lipid peroxidation mechanisms that could uh, contribute to that. Yeah, it begs the question that we really have a limited understanding of these species and these environments that are really orchestrating health and, and longevity for every one cell of human cells. There's 10 cells of microbes. So so there is a lot to be learned here in implications in health and, and disease and how this sets the stage. I would be really interested to see some long-term studies with these patients to determine which bacteria is protective, which is associated with decreased risk of survival. I think that's a question that is yet to be answered, but it would be it would have a lot of implications. So that's something that I would be interested in. So I'll follow up on the study in the coming months. Scott Friedman. I think the broader implication, which Rachel's comments uh, hint at, is how much of this disease is actually a gut microbiome disease, meaning that have we changed the nature of our intestinal flora over the course of 20 or 30 or more years, in part because we eat foods that have antibiotics indirectly in them, because we take antibiotics indiscriminately for every headache or stuffed nose. And there's a school of thought that suggests that we have effectively shifted our microbiota towards one that is more fat and energy retaining through these society-wide changes in our food and in our use of antibiotics. Uh, and until we understand that, we're really not going to be able to slow the progression of or the increasing prevalence of the disease. That's a simplistic perspective, I understand. But, you know, there are a lot of animal studies that support the importance of the microbiome in either driving or attenuating fatty liver disease. Well, it, look, the phenomenon you just described, first of all, doesn't pertain only to fatty liver disease. We talk about um, decreases in sperm counts, changes in the age at which uh, females, I can, I'm not going to say girls, I'm not going to say women because I'm not going to put age on things, but, you know, come to uh, come into puberty. Uh, all that stuff 
is, I think, back to antibiotics and, and uh, different kinds of hormones that, that go into food and the environment and everything else. There's a meta message, which is that we have a lot more control over ourselves and our own lives than we necessarily give ourselves credit for. I have a cousin who underwent bariatric surgery, at which point she's gotten her weight down to a normal zone. But I watch how she feeds her kid. And I tried to explain to her at one point, Rachel, your your, your statement about the, the what's a 10 microbiome for every gene. She said, well, no, if, if my kid has this problem, it's going to be genetics. I said, well, no, I don't think it's quite that simple. And then explained and, and, and got stark denial. That's not a surprise. But I think we would do well as a society to start educating ourselves that every day we can take more control of how this stuff plays out. Scott, that's not going to overcome the global issue you're talking about. Well, I, I guess that if you make a point to eat foods that don't have antibiotics in them, you you know, and, and are labeled in certain ways, it's better. I, it's a good point, Roger. I don't know what are the conditions that define something as non-GMO, genetically modified. Does that mean that there's a guarantee that nowhere along the development of that product there was never was exposure to antibiotics? What about the grain that's being eaten by the farm animals that ultimately become our food? Does, is that whole chain free of antibiotics in order to be GMO? I, I don't know how these are defined. Actually, when I was a grad student, I was teaching a really compelling class called Chemistry of Cooking, and I had my students look up the labels from the USDA to determine what's considered organic and, and not organic. And organic often indicates no GMOs, but organic does not constitute no pesticides, herbicides, etc. So it's false labeling, it's confusing, and the everyday consumer does not really know where their food sources are coming and how they're being treated. So I almost think that we have little control over what we consume and how much. And Scott, as you were just alluding to, there's bioaccumulation in this from every step in the process. So I don't know how much control any of us have individually over this, which is problematic. One would infer then that if we have any control over it at all, to get to a place where we're going to stop, because I don't want to go any further on this line, it involves our uh, activities as public citizens and voters and advocates for different things. Fundamentally, if you can't change it for yourself and you got to figure out how to change it for the world, that's going to be a complicated uh, set of questions. I think that that's kind of the path I hear the two of you going down. Well, I'm down about as far as my knowledge will take me, probably beyond that. I'm over my skis right now, so I'll pull back. I, Scott, I just landed on my nose, so I mean, I, I'm right there with you. Rachel, thanks. That was a fantastic way to start this conversation, and, and I think it's interesting. Go to a liver meeting and wind up talking about public policy that has nothing per se to do with the liver. It's all interconnected. I think that's great. Scott, you're on. Why don't one of you two go next? So, you know, I should say when I come to these or any meeting, I try to say to myself, well, what have I actually learned? What's different? And I distill it to more broad themes. And to me, the theme of the meeting is the devils in the details. Now, what do I mean by that? You know, as a translational investigator who also relies a lot on, you know, animal models and cell culture models, I've always tried to be as reductionist as possible to try to explain phenomena with a simpler pathway, with a simple paradigm. And unfortunately, that impulse is being completely squashed by the reality of what NASH and NAFLD are. And so I walk away from this being somewhat sobered by the fact that there's details in the cells that comprise the NAFLD or NASH liver, the probably different pathologies, the different genetic backgrounds, the different microbiota, and of course the differences in the clinical management and diagnostics as well as treatments. This complexity is really a new challenge conceptually. It's not a single disease with a 
single pathogenic kind of vulnerability that everybody can treat and solve. One of the problems with the field is that everybody naturally approached the disease as, you know, this is going to be a simple problem. We'll just hit the press the right button and we'll solve the problem. Certainly in the investor community, there's been a lot of exhaustion because they want quick wins. And this one seems to be a longer term challenge. I have absolutely no doubt that the disease will yield to effective therapies incrementally, but effectively. But still, I've been forced kicking and screaming to appreciate that this is a very complex disease and one that we will continue to sort of advance in small but meaningful steps. Well, that's been for me that I can give you examples of that. Steve Harrison did a really nice job of presenting an approach of diagnosis with a particular trial of a drug that inhibits the enzyme fatty acid synthase, which if you block it will prevent fat accumulation in the liver. And with all of the different tests, there were still no guarantee, for example, that an improvement in liver fat translates into an improvement in histology in all patients, that the same combination of tests in different people will yield the same predictive value. He did come away with, you know, a couple of tests that seem to be more informative when you combine them. I think it was AST and liver fat. On the other hand, he showed that one of the liver fat measures that is used increasingly called the CAP score turned out to have no correlation with the amount of fat and therefore is just a binary readout of does the patient's liver have fat or not. This became a very nuanced discussion that quite frankly at the end I wasn't sure we'd made any progress except to understand that just measuring fat in the liver is never going to be enough for every patient. Some patients probably the way you reduce the fat is going to be clinically meaningful and others not and it always comes back to the simple fact that most patients in the world who have fat in their liver do not develop NASH. So clearly, you know, fat alone is not the problem. Jörn Schattenberg. Yeah, let me jump in because it sounds a bell with me and you're, you're talking about natural history, but it might even be that not even any drug has to, you know, have an effect on all these attributes in the disease. And you and I, Scott, discussed this previously where you could develop a drug where fat content is not changed, but it has an influential benefit on inflammation and cell injury. And that way you, you still get a net benefit. But if you look at it and the patient has fatty liver and fatty liver doesn't go away, the question is, you know, will he benefit at all? So then it depends on the test. It depends on the mechanism and maybe the genetic background. We're learning in that sound resonance with me here, what Scott is saying. We're learning it's a complex disease. Some subtypes, we're making progress. And you can't just look from the very top and say the fat is the bad thing. You've got to really break it down and understand what's happening. You know, the way that you both just frame that it makes me want to... Scream. 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 Yeah. <laughs> Certainly. It, it, it's complex and, and it's nuanced and it's taking me a couple years to start to get a handle on everything involved in NASH and fibrosis. But what you both just said in, in a way is not what is driving the disease, but also what is protecting those patients who do not go on to develop adverse outcomes with NASH. And that is a question that would, of course, take a lot of resources and a lot of time. But I think it's an important question in, in the field. What are the protective mechanisms that are occurring in these patients? Is it epigenetics? Yeah, well, it's a great point, Rachel. And, and that path has been pursued in other diseases. So the, I can't think of an exact example, but you know, there are clearly some diseases where there is some genetic mutation or variant that is associated with disease, and yet people go a whole lifetime and never get the disease, even though they had the genetic risk. And that has driven geneticists to look at what are the protective factors. So I think that's a very interesting and, and sensible way to frame it, particularly since the vast majority of people with fat in the liver are protected from NASH. So they clearly have something that the others lack. There is one example in NASH that it may be instructive, which is the 
polymorphism in the gene HSD17B13 that was discovered probably now four or five years ago at uh, Regeneron. And it turns out that the gene encodes for an enzyme, the substrate of which and the product of which we, we don't know yet. Yet, if the enzyme is inactive because there is a gene variant that turns off the translation and they don't make the gene into protein, those patients generally have normal or lower AST and ALT. And that's true in alcohol. It's true in non-alcoholic liver disease. It actually is true in other liver diseases like hep C as well. So all of that suggests that here's a built-in protective factor, which is a variant in a gene that prevents that gene from being active and therefore from, from the enzyme doing its job. Now, the critical question is, what is that enzyme generating? Because therein lies perhaps one of the secrets of why fat converts into an inflammatory disease. And so people are scrambling to first understand the biochemistry of that enzyme, what it normally makes, and what you're preventing the generation of with the variant. Uh, but from a more practical level, it's already led to at least three or four programs in the commercial world to simply antagonize the protein, either with an siRNA or with a small molecule in those patients who otherwise would express the active gene and make the injurious species from the enzyme, whatever that may be. Uh, that's a path that's been well-trod by the example of PCSK9, which is an accessory receptor for cholesterol, and I'm out of my depth here on the lipid biology. But it was realized that patients who had a very of inactive PCSK9 were completely protected from coronary artery disease. So the smart scientists and companies who recognize this said, I have an easy solution. For those who have normal PCSK9, let's develop an inhibitor. Who knows what it does? And of course, now they do know. And in fact, inhibitors of PCSK9, either through small molecules or siRNAs, have become a mainstay for people with extremely high cholesterol where statins don't do the job. So we're encroaching on a better understanding and a better nuance and a flies in the face of simple models that apply to every patient and uh, every instance of fatty liver disease. So, Scott, one of the things I find really interesting in that comment is the fork in the road between why does that happen and what do we do about it, mm -hmm. right? And the idea that, in fact, you might not need to know why something happens in order to know what to do next, which isn't historically how we think about this stuff, right? Knowledge yields more knowledge, but sometimes you, you can chase the why down a rabbit hole uh, where you could just more quickly and more easily get to the, okay, is there anything we can do about this, which I, I've got some familiarity with the commercial commercial issues around PCSK9 and how a lot of the thinking around that developed commercially, not scientifically, but I, I know that that's a case where investors would ask questions like, well, why is it going to work that way? And the answer is going to be, well, we don't know. We just know that it will, at least in the early days. And, and, and that was enough. Yeah, it's still enough. I mean, PCSK9 inhibitors are unbelievably potent. I haven't kept up with the biology. I know there's a lot known now about why blocking it prevents uh, hypercholesterolemia, but they're very potent. So, but if you carry that into fatty liver, right, one of the, one of the thoughts is if we can figure out how to fix a couple of these things without solving the problem problem, you might get to a better solution once you know what you just fixed, mm -hmm. which is, I think, the PCSK9 story. Fix it first, solve it later. So, Joran, your turn. You know, I mentioned the complexity of the disease and the subtypes and so on, but Scott, you are right. I mean, if we enter that lane and show improvement, it can reverse, maybe, you know, in, in reversion, we can solve the question, you know, we, we cured these guys, let's look from the back end and see what helped them. So, it might not be as difficult or, or mind-blowing, and, and maybe we can't understand everything from the beginning, but we will once we have a treatment in our, on Scott's sites that this is feasible.
still possible and will be there soon. Yeah, and of course, the thing, let's not forget, this is a disease that does yield to therapy. It happens to be mostly bariatric surgery at this point, but the data couldn't be more compelling on how you save lives and reduce comorbidities when patients undergo bariatric surgery as long as they keep the weight off. And so the biology within the liver is capable of reversion. The question is, how do we do that without having to commit to, you know, surgery or more aggressive approaches? Yeah, and then, and as we've just said, I think the trick might wind up being a reverse engineer that, although that's easy for me to say, I haven't taken a natural science course since high school biology. So yeah. I can approach this not at 30,000 feet, but at 30,000 miles, look down on earth and say, well, there's a solution. Then you guys have to figure out what the heck it means. But I, I think that these are all excellent points. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next Wednesday evening with a wrap-up episode, taking a look at some of the highlights of the meeting from the perspective of folks we may not have heard from yet, including Will Alazawi, who's been with us once, and Laurent Costera, who's never been with us before. It's going to be a fantastic session. Till then, stay safe, surf on. Look forward to seeing you again next week on the podcast. Bye-bye now.